Well, I'm in a, uh, a spot this morning to be able to try to convey to you something of the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and <clears throat> that is uh, not an easy task, so I'd appreciate a little sympathy on that. Um, and what I mean by that is there are so many things that could be said, um, so many things. I mean, just the, the brief survey Steve uh, mentioned this morning, th- going through the Old Testament and looking at these, these types, these shadows of the resurrection of Jesus, then his own predictions in the Gospels, then all the explanations in, in the epistles, not to mention the centrality of the resurrection and the preaching of the early church. We could, we could literally spend months and months talking about the resurrection. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand that it really is the pinnacle of, of events in human history. It's the linchpin, really, of Christianity, isn't it? Without it, we have no Christianity. You might not think that. You might think it's the cross. Without the cross, we don't have any Christianity. Well, that would be true. But even more than that, if the resurrection isn't true, then that means Jesus is still dead and our sins aren't paid for. And that's bad news, right? But the reality is, he's alive. And so, so much could be said, so much could be expounded, and I had, in, in thinking through this, originally I was thinking, well, I'm just going to do something simple. Ten reasons to believe in the resurrection. And then I was like, that's going to be too long. I'm going to do five. And then I'm like, you know, that's going to probably be too long. So I'm down to one. Okay? I'm down to one reason. <laughs> one reason to believe and hope in the resurrection. And I hope, I hope it'll encourage you. So let's turn first to Luke 24. What I want to show... This morning is that one reason that we should believe and hope in the resurrection is that the resurrection of Jesus was based on Old Testament prophecy. Now, Steve seemed to think that I wasn't going to go there this morning, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. However, the text that I'll be speaking on, he just happened to not hit, so I'm thankful for that. No, I wouldn't have cared even if he did. But Luke 24, 44 through 47, I want to read this. And the reason I do is because I want you all to understand that the life and ministry of Jesus Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. This is extremely important. Jesus didn't come on the scene making stuff up as he goes. He is coming with every footstep sort of plotting along with Old Testament prophecy. There is a fulfillment of these things. And he says this in Luke 24, 44. Right after his resurrection, to people who were slow to believe that he really rose from the dead, he says this, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What is that? That's the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is saying, you should have known I rose from the dead because the prophets say so, the Psalms say so, Moses says so. We should be able to go back to the Old Testament and see that, of course the Messiah is going to rise from the dead. And Jesus said, this is all in the Old Testament. Verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus says, it is written, it is written in the Old Testament 
that not only would I die, but I will rise on the third day. Now Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. You can listen as I read that, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 1, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That's a scary statement, isn't it? That you can believe in vain. You have to hold fast to the word until the end, or it's all in vain. That doesn't go very well to the Um, I walked an aisle when I was eight, yet there's no fruit in my life claim, right? Paul says you need to endure to the end in order to be saved, and this gospel will ensure that, but you must persevere. And he goes on and he says and details out this gospel. What is this gospel, Paul, that we're to hold on to? Verse 3, I delivered you what was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures? The Old Testament Scriptures. That was the ones that existed in this day, right? The New Testament was being developed. Verse 5, and that he appeared, I'm sorry, verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So what's contained in the Old Testament scriptures? The death of Jesus for sins, not his own. The burial of Jesus. The resurrection on the third day. And his appearance to others. These things are in accordance with the scriptures. So, the question is, which ones? Which scriptures is he talking about? Especially, is Paul saying that that not only is the resurrection predicted in the Old Testament, but the resurrection even down to the third day? Well, yeah, it's there. And we're going to look at that passage this morning. And I know that there are others, but at least one that I think Paul has in mind. Before I get there, let's pray. Father, what a glory to have your word in front of us. And Lord, we just pray again that you would do what no one can do. You would open our minds to understand the scriptures that these scriptures point to and highlight and contain the acts and the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we should believe by faith. Lord, please do these things for the good of your people, for our encouragement, and for the salvation of sinners within the sound of my voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what scriptures do Jesus and Paul have in mind? Well, you could say the whole thing, right? If you read the whole thing, you'll pick up on it. But there's some in particular. So, one this morning I want to just highlight is Jonah. The book of Jonah. Now, you kids, you know about the book of Jonah, right? You probably watch Veggie Tales, right? And you know some of the songs. I can't remember the songs off the top of my head. I should, but I don't for some reason. But you're familiar with the story, aren't you? Jonah was a prophet, wasn't he? Was Jonah an obedient prophet? No, right? He disobeyed. 
But God had big plans for him. But Jonah was an 8th century prophet. What that means is he came about 800 years before Jesus. And he was a prophet of God that was sent to preach to a non-Israelite people. Right? A pagan nation, Nineveh. In Assyrian territory. The Jews did not look kindly on the Gentiles. These pagan, non-Israelite peoples. And God was sending Jonah to preach to them. And Jonah did not like that. And so Jonah disobeyed the word of the Lord, didn't he? And he ran as if you can run (laughs) from God. But that's what sin does. It kind of clouds your judgment. He disobeyed the Lord and he fled on a ship away from Nineveh to the place where God told him to go preach. And, And what did God do? Well, when Jonah was on this ship fleeing from God, God brings a fierce storm to that ship. And the men of that ship trying to sort out why this massive storm is happening and they're about to die, realized that Jonah had some culpability here. They had a sense that Jonah was the cause of the storm. And so what did they do? Well, even by Jonah's own admission, he's like, it's probably me. And so what they do, they threw him overboard. And the storm died down. And the text says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, when Jonah was in the water, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Jesus doesn't think so. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, and this is where we'll be for the remainder of our time. Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to read the passage for us. Verse 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, Any evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of who? Jonah, the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What an amazing passage. So what's going on? Well, Jesus has interactions with lots of different people in his ministry, in his earthly ministry. The most frustrating for him were no doubt the Pharisees least the most angering. He could be frustrated as a disciple sometimes too. And here he is interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees. Says it in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So who are these Pharisees and scribes? Well, most of you know these are the religious leaders of the day. Pharisees were separatists. Their name in Aramaic originally kind of means separation. They think that they're the elite, the ones that God really loves, the one that God really, sort of their choice men, the Bible teachers of the day, the men that prayed continually and let everyone know that they were praying. 
the ones who tithed religiously, the ones who fasted even. Do you fast? They did. These were religious men. They thought that they were the cream of the crop because they had the lineage. They were in the line of the Jewish people that had the promises. They had the history. They had the oracles of God. These guys had the scriptures. And yet they hated Jesus Christ, didn't they? They were utterly jealous of him. Over and over they're trying to trap him, as Ben was talking about this morning in Sunday school, talking about the sufferings of Jesus. One of those sufferings was just this continual management of the Pharisees plotting to kill him. This was the religious men. These were not gangsters. These were the pastors of the day. Just because you have the Bible, just because you have truth, does not mean you're on Jesus' side, does it? It doesn't. They were, they were jealous of him. They, they, they sought to discredit him at every turn. And here, they ask for a sign. Some way for Jesus to truly prove his identity as Messiah. Some indisputable miracle that verifies that he is God's son. But the reality is he's already worked amazing signs. If you've read Matthew, he's already cleansed lepers. Right? He's already healed a paralytic. He's already done amazing miracles. These Pharisees already know his claims for miraculous birth. Now the reality is they didn't... They weren't honest here, were they? You know, if you went to Washington, D.C., walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, and all of a sudden there was this caravan of black limousines and SUVs surrounded by guards and men with black sunglasses and wires hanging out of their ears, and there was a band following Hail to the Chief, and some guy pops out and says, I'm the President of the United States, and you turn to your, you know, your, your wife or your friend and says, yeah, I need, a, I need more proof than this, right? Well, that would be absurd. Why? Because evidence is all around you. This is what Jesus knows very well and what the readers know very well, that these Pharisees aren't being honest. The, the, the evidence is all around him. The way he talks, the way he speaks, the way he says that, that I'm here to fulfill Isaiah. I'm here to fulfill the Old Testament prophets. I'm here to, to show miracles that only God can do. These people were not honest. It's merely a cover for their hatred. What about you? Is this your excuse? Why don't you follow Jesus? Why don't these Pharisees follow Jesus? You know, you hear very often, well, I just, I need a little more evidence. If I just had that little more evidence, you know, just a little bit more, I would be, I would be sealed and that would do it for me. Well, that, that doesn't work, does it? You've got ample evidence. More so than probably any place in, on the planet, you've got evidence. There's no good excuse to not follow Jesus, is there? Not one. Not one. And even when evidence is given to these Pharisees, they still don't believe. So what's our conclusion? Well, it's a moral problem. It's not an issue of confusion. These Pharisees are not confused. These men are trying to find something that they can say, ah, you're not 
who you say you are, or even just something they can distort to get everybody else to not believe him. That's what they're after. What does Jesus respond with when they come up to him saying, teacher, we want a sign from you? Jesus says, an evil and adulterous, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. You crave a sign? You crave a sign? You really, really want that, just that, that perfect bit of evidence? Is that what you crave? Jesus says that's an evil and an adulterous generation. Think of that. Adulterous. Adulterous? What's adultery? Adultery is sleeping with someone else that's not your spouse. That's adultery, isn't it? Jesus says this generation's adulterous. Was it just that generation? Well, I think it's pretty much every generation, isn't it? What does Jesus mean by that? Is all these Pharisees sleeping with, with women in, that, that are not their spouses? Well, maybe some of them are. Remember the woman caught in adultery? That's an interesting passage. But if you read the Old Testament, adultery is more of a spiritual adultery. In other words, Jesus calls his people adulterers in the Old Testament just because they seek other gods rather than God himself. So it's like, it's like his own people are cheating on God. And that's this world. God has made you to love him, to be with him, to walk with him. And yet you love other things more than God. You're cheating on God. You're an adulterous generation. And really anyone who doesn't know Jesus is an adulterer in God's sight because you have other loves more than him. If you love anything more than Jesus Christ, you're an adulterer. And you're not really wanting it to be true that Jesus is real. Yeah, maybe in your back of your mind you have a sneaking suspicion it might be, but you hold that truth down, just like these Pharisees. You suppress it. It's adultery. You ever thought of yourself like that? If you don't know Jesus Christ in here, have you ever thought of yourself like that? That's how God, that's how God sees you. Now you're not without hope. But you have to come to grips with who you are. You have to come to grips with, with who you've been trading God in for. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And what does Jesus say? And no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Now this is interesting. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Now, how does he mean, what does he mean when he says the sign of Jonah the prophet? He explains it in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus says that I'm not going to give you any sign, no parlor trick, but I'm going to give you one. And it's like Jonah's experience of being swallowed in the belly for three days in the great fish, which foreshadowed and typified Jesus' own experience of being swallowed by death for three days. Now, I'm going to get a little theological for five minutes, okay? So try to stay with me. 
I'm going to explain to you something called typology. Who's heard that word before? Okay. Typology. Just stick with me here. There are some prophecies in the Old Testament that directly state a future event that will come to pass. Okay? For example, in Isaiah, Behold, a virgin will bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's a paraphrase, but that's the statement. Okay? This is a direct prophetic statement that Isaiah makes about what? The birth of Jesus, right? The virgin birth. Okay. It's fulfilled when Mary conceives and Jesus and has Jesus and he's called Emmanuel. And it's recorded in Matthew for us, okay? However, there is another way that the Old Testament prophesies indirectly of the coming of Christ and the days that he will bring. As Peter says, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. There's another way, and it's an indirect way. And this indirect prophecy is called typology. Okay? Typology is a way of interpreting the events, the lives of people and their circumstances of, in the Old Testament as patterns and examples and types of the future era of Jesus and the New Covenant. Okay? This is so important for you to understand your Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament and you're scratching your head not knowing what's going on, this will help you understand. This will be a good grid for you to grasp how Jesus can point to Jonah and say, this is Jonah's about my resurrection. Right? Or look at the whole temple system and say, this is about Jesus as the temple. Or whatever. Okay? Let me give you a couple examples here. Romans 5, Paul calls Adam a type of Christ. What does this mean? Well, Paul means that Adam's life is a pattern or a prefigurement of Christ in some way. What way? Well, Adam is the head of the human race. What he does, he does for all those united to him. So when he disobeys and incurs guilt and the condemnation of God, so also do all those connected with him. Right? So, so, now that, so now before we know Jesus, we get Adam's record in bad heart. Adam is our representative. He's the head of the human race. Okay. Now, in like manner, Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ. Well, how so? What Christ does, he does for all those connected to him. He obeys his Father by going to the cross, and his righteousness is now passed on to all those who believe in him. So Adam is the head and representative of all unbelievers. Christ is the head and the representative of all believers. So Adam's life in history prefigures and patterns Jesus. Adam is a true historical person, but his life has a prophetic feature to it. Adam's life is sort of prophetic. It's, it's pointing to more than Adam. This is amazing, isn't it? Isn't this amazing? This is the scripture. This is the Bible we have. This is the one mind of God over all of scripture. So, so Adam is a type of Christ. What Adam does, he does for all his people. And what Christ does, he does for all his people. Much more could be said on that. Here's another example. Marriage. Marriage is established in what chapter in Genesis? Two, right? Marriage 
is a union of one flesh between one man and one woman. But this union of marriage is a pattern of the intimacy of, and union between Jesus and his church. So marriage also established in Genesis 2, while it's a historical reality and we enjoy it, it points to more than marriage. It's a type, it's a picture of the greater relationship and really the more important relationship between Jesus and his church. So just, just in Genesis 1 and 2, you get the first two types. Boom, boom. And the rest of the Old Testament, guess what's there? A bunch of other types. It's amazing. The New Testament writers understood typology very well. So when Jesus looks at Jonah's experience of being swallowed in a great fish for three days and then being miraculously delivered from the fish, he's saying that this is much more than a coincidence. God is so orchestrating events in the Old Testament. Most of them are patterns or shadows of the time of Christ and the glories that he brings. So Jonah was historical. It's not allegory. We don't go there, right? These prophets, Jonah was a real man. That's why it's not allegory. Because these are real historical events. But they're historical events that pointed to things greater than themselves. Okay. So that's a little little lesson on typology. Interpreting the Old Testament. You interpret it with Christ as the key. Or as Peter says, the, glory, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So just like Jonah's miraculous deliverance after three days, Jesus would be delivered as well. And he's going to get to that. But before this happens, I want you to hear something. We get a testimony of Jonah who was saved miraculously by God. This salvation story is also a type of our salvation story as well. And I want you to listen to Jonah. Remember, Jonah's thrown into the water. He's swallowed by the fish. And now you get to hear what Jonah's thinking and what he's saying. And it's actually a prayer of thanksgiving he makes to the Lord while inside the belly of the fish. It's interesting. Jonah 2, 1 through 10. Listen to this. Listen to what Jonah says. Jonah's inside the fish. All he can think about is God's deliverance. Now how, not how inconvenient, how smelly, how weird. God's deliverance. Think of this. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. And then the famous verse and phrase, salvation is from the Lord. What's Jonah talking about here? 
Is Jonah all sad because he got swallowed by the fish? No. The fish is actually God's miraculous means of saving Jonah. What, what do we mean? Well, he was going to die in the, in the middle of the ocean. Waves engulfing him. Total distress and despair. And all of a sudden, oh. And he wakes up alive in the belly of a fish. And what's he thinking? He's thinking, salvation is of the Lord. You can't make this stuff up. And he knows it's of the Lord. Why? Because he says, I was fainting away. I was bobbing in the water, about to perish, and I remembered the Lord. That's what he says. I remembered the Lord. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Amazing. Jonah cried to the Lord, and the, and the Lord his God heard him, caused the great fish to swallow him, and Jonah doesn't see the fish as a curse, but as a means of salvation, a miracle, really. And this is, of course, why he says salvation's from the Lord. I mean, Jonah couldn't do anything about his plight, could he? Couldn't do anything. Couldn't swim far enough. Couldn't last long enough. God sends a fish. God is the one who saves. And you know, every salvation is a miracle. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, you're a miracle. You're a miracle. Reject completely the notion that Christianity is one religion among many. It is not. It is the expression of the revelation and salvation of God in the hearts of sinners. It's true, and it's real, and it's miraculous. Do you know it? Can you say, my life is a miracle? I am a miracle. Because Jesus Christ saved me when I could do nothing to save myself. We're all miracles if we know Jesus. You know, another lesson we learned from Jonah, you can't run from the Lord. It's really... Silly. It's like my kids saying they're going to hide from me in my own house. It just, it doesn't work. I want you to all know that. He sees you, okay? You can't run from him. You might think you're running from him and you're putting him off. He sees you. You need to stop running. You need to stop. What does he want? Well, he wants you to realize your desperate state, just like Jonah. He wants you to call on him. That's all he wants. He doesn't need your good works. He doesn't need your tithes. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your faith. He wants your love. And he's worth it all, isn't he? And what we find is that when you call on the name of the Lord, the Lord saves. When you are true, when you sincerely want Jesus Christ, you can have Him. 
Isn't that wonderful? You can have him. The testimony of the saints throughout history is that we call on the Lord and he answers. Steve's talking about Genesis 4. At the end there, that passage where it says that then men began to call on the Lord. That's the Christian life. It's just calling on the Lord. And, and our prayers go into the most holy of holies. They go into his holy temple. They go where God is. They make it into his office. And he hears and acts. On behalf of little people like us. Little nothings floating out in the middle of the ocean after we've rejected his call and his summons and commands. Yet he still hears us. You know, God may have some of you at a point of utter distress and despair. Understand that is no accident. It is no accident. God oftentimes will bring people to utter distress, distress and despair so that they will call on him. You must call on him. And the Lord will respond. Well, when Jonah prayed this prayer of thanks in the belly of the fish, after three days, God commanded the fish to spit Jonah up onto dry land. You are still in the realm of miracles. Okay? Here the fish becomes his charter to the beach. Fish could have spit him out in the middle of the water. He could have still drowned. That didn't happen. The fish spit him out on dry land. Whatever that looked like. But it says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Jonah, then the Lord commanded the fish. And it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. The Lord commanded the fish. Fish, go over there. God's word. Everything obeys it. Everything. Everything in creation obeys it. It's powerful. So, Jesus says that Jonah's experience is like his. Jonah was in the belly three days. Jesus will be, he will die and he will be in the grave for three days and will rise again. Here you have a prophet of God. Just think of this. You have a prophet of God in Jonah who was rejected by men to die so that they would be saved from the fierce storm. The prophet spends three days in the belly of a fish. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord delivers him by commanding the fish to spit him out. And the fish spits him out on dry land. And this prefigures the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And think of Jesus, rejected by men, sentenced to death, buried for three days, raised to life by God's power, miraculously, never to die again. See, these Old Testament stories, they they give the contours and the shape of the gospel events of Jesus Christ. This whole Bible is about the gospel. It's not about, let's be better people and follow the Ten Commandments. It's about the sinless Son of God. And, do, and whether or not you know him, and how God has provided a solution of salvation from sin in him. That's why Jesus can point to Jonah and say, it's about me. And really, even in Jonah's prayer, where you hear of his fears of death and being cut off from the presence of the Lord, you hear the Spirit of Jesus Christ in that too, don't you? Didn't Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
He felt cut off from God. He was cut off from God. More than Jonah was. Wasn't he? Bearing the sins of all his people for all time. Experiencing the abandonment that he had never experienced of his father when his father turned his back on his son and treated him like a curse. But even through that, Jesus trusted in his father. And you hear it even in Jonah's language there when he's talking about his own distress and how he he still said he's going to look at the temple again. He's going to see God. Jesus the same. He still calls him my God, doesn't he? Even though he says, why have you forsaken me? He still calls him my God. And because of Jesus' obedience to the point of death, God raises him up miraculously. Amazing. You guys, we are, if you think that Christianity is not supernatural, or if you think it's just about be nice, you do not understand it at all. You don't. And you need to, and you can. He's given us his word. His word shows you these things, and you'll be captivated by glory. You've never, you can never imagine the glory of the eternal Son of the living God who rises from the dead. Literally, when a lot of the apostle, apostolic writers say that Jesus was risen from the dead, the word is necrois, it's literally raised from the dead ones. It's like there's this mass of dead people, and there's Jesus. And he's the one who actually comes to life in the midst of this sea, this horde of dead people. And he's raised to never die again. It's amazing. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 41 and says that the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. When you think back in Jonah's account, we know that Jonah did end up getting to Nineveh and he preached repentance and the once godless Gentile city of Nineveh did repent and revival broke out. Amazing story. A prophet preaching the gospel brings salvation to sinners. But Jesus says something greater than Jonah is here. He says that. Something greater than Jonah is here. Well, that's amazing. I mean, when Jonah preached... A whole pagan city broke out in revival. And you're saying something greater than that is here? And Jesus says, yeah, me. In other words, Jesus says, I'm here. I much more than preach. I see, that's all Jonah can do. Jonah can preach. It's a blessed task, but that's all he can do. Jesus works miracles. Jesus speaks to water and wind. Jesus heals lepers. Jesus heals paralytics. Jesus forgives sin. Jesus speaks things that no one else has ever spoken, right? When Jesus comes on the scene, no one ever speaks like this guy. And everybody knows it because he's unique. Something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was actually my prophet, scribes and Pharisees. It was my spirit in Jonah. Not only testifying of my salvation in Jonah, 
but also pointing to me. Can't make this stuff up. I have demonstrated, Jesus says, signs that point to my identity as the Son of God and Messiah, and yet you do not believe, scribes and Pharisees. So the sign you'll get is the sign of Jonah, my resurrection. Now Jesus isn't really saying that, that he, he's not saying that I really hope that you will believe when you see me raised from the dead. He's not, he's not saying that like, okay, I'm going to pull out the final stop, you know, and now you'll get it. It's not really what he's saying. He's kind of being sarcastic. This sign of the resurrection is not Jesus conceding to the scribes and Pharisees. The resurrection is the completion of his mission, which must happen. These Pharisees already had plenty of evidence, and Jesus says the next sign is actually the one that brings even further condemnation on you. Jesus says, I'll rise from the dead, which is the most amazing miracle and something Jonah did not do, and yet the pagans of Nineveh repented. And you religious people, you Pharisees, will not repent. Jesus says you're evil and adulterous. You don't really know, want to know who I am. You want to disprove who I am. The men of Nineveh, Gentile pagans, who were loved by God, repented when God said, turn from their sin. Now these men of Nineveh, Nineveh these pagans, at the day of judgment, think of it, they're all going to be there. That town of Nineveh where, where revival broke out, they're going to stand there and they're going to look at all these religious people and they're going to point and they'll say, this Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you rejected him. And, and somehow, some way, we participate in the condemnation of these wicked people. That's what he says. You ever thought about that? The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. The men of Nineveh will stand up with the generation of all the religious, Bible-believing unbelievers in Greenville, South Carolina, and will condemn them to hell because they do not believe truly in Jesus Christ. Oh, that's fire and brimstone. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. These men of Nineveh said, when we heard the truth, we repented. You guys had the Son of God and you reject Him. Therefore, condemnation will be your lot. If you're not a believer today, you live in that era where something greater than Jonah is here. You have to understand this. You live in an era of clarity like never before in history. Isaiah and the prophets and, and Daniel and these other men, these, these, these men gifted by God, wanted to trade places with us because they were predicting of these things that were not clear to them. He's this era of Christ. And yet we live in this era. How many times have you heard the gospel and yet you still don't walk with Jesus Christ? You know, we, we think about, you know, cultures that are barbaric and savage and they don't have the gospel and we look down on them. But let me tell you something. 
the ones that are really pitiable are the ones who've heard over and over and hardened their hearts. Their judgment will be worse. Make no mistake. Make no mistake about it. It will be. We live in the era where Jesus has come, died on the cross for sinners, been raised from the dead. His life, death, and resurrection is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And it happened. Jesus isn't telling you to take some blind leap of faith, is he? He's saying, I'm coming in accordance with thousands of years of prophecy. Jonah's just one. We could go to all the others Steve mentioned, and then the whole Old Testament, (laughs) written by multiple authors over thousands of years. I mean, this is what Jesus is bringing. I mean, what more can he do to convince you? So what must you do? Well, you need to repent and believe in Jesus. You must see him as the Messiah, the Son of God. You don't want to experience the condemnation on, on, that, that, that comes on those who, who use the excuse that there's just not enough evidence. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees that need another sign. You're bluffing if you say that. You don't really want another sign. You want to hold on to your sin. And don't mock God. And here's what I mean by that. You might think, well, I'm unforgivable. Right? I've done too much. I've said too much. I've, you don't know. I don't need to know. God knows. God knew everything that Paul did. A man who was, who was involved in the killing of Christians. Not in the killing of just, you know, people he didn't, I don't know, like had personality qualms with. These were Christians. These were people that were actually making society better. These were people that, that really, you know, were great citizens and so on and so forth. Yet for Paul, he hated them. Why? Because they went against everything he believed as a Jew. And yet, even though he's involved in all these violent acts, Jesus Christ arrests him with his presence on the road to Damascus, forgives him of his sin, even though he was involved in murder. No, Jesus Christ was murdered for murderers, wasn't he? He was shamed on the cross because of the most shameful acts that have happened in human history. Why did God, why did God send his son? His, he, he sent his son to die for sinners. That's why he's here. I mean, the whole reason Jesus Christ came was to forgive us of our wickedness, and we all have it. It's all dark and black, and we all have it, and yet God sends his son to bleed and die and take on the curse so that we'll look to him and say, my only hope. And it's a sufficient hope. So don't mock God by turning away from him saying you're too bad. You're too far away, right? Don't be Jonah and run unless it ends like Jonah least in the moment in the fish. He goes on to not do that great even after the story. But Let go of your unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, rejoice in this great salvation. What an amazing hope we have in the Lord Jesus. Christ has been raised in accordance with the Scriptures. 
And as we said, what he's done, he's done for all those who believe in him. So if he was raised, we will be raised also. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We'll have new bodies one day. Never to sin again. Live forever in God's presence where there's fullness of joy. Forever. As Peter says, we'll have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So again, the question is, do you know him? You know? If you have a sneaking suspicion that you're merely religious and you don't really know Jesus Christ, call on the Lord. It really doesn't get, it's not complicated. He's a living God and he wants you to call on him. Do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rising from the dead, giving us eternal hope. Pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts of all those who hear. For your glory and honor and their good. In Jesus' name, amen.